my first Katie Lang encounter was she came on the radio and my mom turned it off uh-huh. and was like, here's why we don't listen to constant craving, which like politics and beliefs aside, constant craving is an undeniable slow jam. Like what a song. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Can't we all just agree on that? Oh my, if there's one thing that we should all be able to agree on, it's the, <laughs> uh, the masterpiece and brilliance <laughs> of that entire album, Ingenue. I am Trevor Campbell, and this is You Made Me Queer, the show where queer folks leave a candle in the window so that Santa will know where to leave a VHS copy of My Beautiful Laundrette. That's what all the queer kids were asking for for Christmas, and I think it holds up, except there's a weird scene near the beginning where the main character's cousin flashes her breasts, I think. It might even be his sister? I don't know, that part confused me. The rest is great. That's right, every episode I invite a fantastic 2S LGBTQIA plus guest to point the finger of blame at who and or what made them queer. I'm doing it again, but wait, it's not the finale. I said last week was the penultimate episode, and yes, I do know what the penultimate episode means, but uh, I added another one. So this is the penultimate episode. That was the Eve Eve, and this is the Eve, and it's a goodie. I think you're going to love it. And what are you complaining about? You're getting more free stuff, right? But my guest today is the wonderful, and we love a triple barrel name over here at You Made Me Queer, Cyrus Marcus Ware. Oh, do you know Cyrus Marcus Ware? Let me tell you about Cyrus Marcus Ware. I love saying that name. Cyrus Marcus Ware is a Vanier scholar, visual artist, activist, curator, and educator. Using painting, installation, and performance, Cyrus works with and explores social justice frameworks in black activist culture. His art and performance work has been shown across Canada and far beyond, including the inaugural Nuit Blanche and Toronto Biennial of Art, and has participated in group shows at the Never Apart in Montreal, the Art Gallery of Ontario, the University of Lethbridge Art Gallery, the Art Gallery of York University, and the Art Gallery of Windsor, a true multi-hyphenate who we also adore on this show. We love a big reach. Uh, Cyrus is also a founding member of Black Lives Matter Toronto, and his most recent book, Abolition is Love, is available now from Seven Stories Press. Cyrus Marcus Ware is one of those people, when you talk to them, as is happening right now, how about let's flip this. When I try and formulate a thought, it kind of comes out like a bunch of like uh, broken teeth from my mouth. And then you have to kind of like sift through it to maybe something that the pawn shop will consider of value. You know, the pawn shop that buys teeth from a mouth. That's how I come up with ideas. Cyrus Marcus Ware, pretty much everything Cyrus says, 
uh, is something you want to etch into stone. Cyrus is so eloquent and so intelligent in an accessible, open, warm way. And there were so many moments, as you'll hear me note in this conversation, where I'm like, can we stop there? Can we stop recording? Because nothing else, nothing can come after that. Uh, but we kept going because, you know, it's my show and I guess I want to keep talking and I have didn't get enough hugs and I like attention and it's my outlet. I did air quotes there. Um, but Cyrus is a real good sport and um, and just beautifully mixes humor with wisdom. Again, I'll say wisdom. It's the best word for it. There are a lot of nuggets from this one that you were going to love and uh, and you can just tune me out. And this is why it's actually going to be easy because I've recorded, this is I think the 70th episode of this show. Many episodes have had two or three guests. So that's close to 100 guests. And you think you know how to use a piece of machinery. And I just got a new laptop. And this is the first episode I've recorded on my new laptop. And somehow Zoom had changed a setting. And I had my big, beautiful microphone in front of me. And for some reason my microphone switched its audio input to my headphones. So that is why I sound like uh, Cyrus Marcus Ware is in a recording studio and I'm joining the call from uh, like a weather helicopter or like a CB radio from a truck, which is not entirely out of the mood board of You Made Me Queer and to be quite honest is a bit more in sort of the fetish camp that uh, the show should be recorded from. But anyway, we meet in the middle. Cyrus has great audio. I have a good audio now. So remember me like this uh, before you, you know, meet me uh, on an AM radio station, which happens momentarily. But you know what? What are you going to do? Again, this show is free. And if you don't like it, please don't stop listening. <laughs> please keep listening. Please like me. You will like Cyrus. This is a great conversation. And that's it. So please enjoy this little chat with the one and only Cyrus Marcus Ware. You made me queer. Wonderful. So we started things off talking about posture. I outed myself as someone with poor posture and already I'm envious of yours. Do you get posture compliments a lot? Uh, I've never had a posture compliment, <gasps> but definitely, you know, my dad always said it was important to, you know, try to walk with a, a, a gate that allows you to walk for the rest of your life, right? So I love that, a gate. So a gate that's going to be like low wear on your body. Exactly. Okay, man, I wish someone had told me that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have, it's funny, I had a friend over yesterday who commented on, on my office chair. I have a, a posture corrector that sits over the back of it, which I almost never use. And it looks like in like a buddy cop movie, you know, those under the jacket holsters mm -hmm. that cops wear. It's like a little shoulder, like kind of like a fetish wear thing. Right, right. Yeah. Or like a jetpack with no jetpack. So I have one of those. That sounds great. I know. It sounds versatile. I almost never wear it. But Is it comfortable? It, uh, it, it fills me with shame. And I'll tell you why. Because every time I put it on, <laughs> I'm like, oh, this could have been my life. There's like a sliding doors moment. <laughs> and I'm like, this feels so unnatural. And I guess this is what a human body is designed to be shaped like. And then I take it off and I collapse into a capital C again <laughs> and scuttle away into the walls. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's a very much a pandemic purchase. 
Well, I mean, I'm very active in uh, disability communities and we would say, you know, roll into that sea and just, uh, you know, keep going. A hundred percent. You're right. It's a very sort of like cishet patriarchal mainstream idea to have good, quote unquote, good posture, right? Yeah, we should just, I think that like, you know, it's, it's hard enough out there, Yeah. you know, we're doing our best. And so... Yeah, you know, if my shoulders slump, they're going to slump. But I do try, like, I mean, my dad's advice was that, you know, he wanted us to be able to go out and, you know, just really experience life. And he knew that if you walk in a way that is hard on your bones and your joints, it, it just makes it really hard to walk. And so, you know, he was encouraging us to really think about, literally think about every step. And I really appreciate that. That is such good advice. Do you, is it natural now or do you ever think about the way you're walking or the way you're doing things because you know how important it is? It's very natural now. Now I just kind of, but I do, you know, and I notice, you know, yeah, I can, I can tell if I, you know, I'm favoring one side or, or favoring another side, I'll have maybe pain in a different part of my body the next day. And so it does make a difference. It totally does. It's all cumulative. There are some times when I'll have a I'm generally okay so far, but if I have a pain in some part of my body and I'll be like, oh yeah, it's from like the way I picked up the cereal box or something. <laughs> yeah. We're so fragile. Yeah. But I'm thankful for that. Yes. It means that we have to be tender with each other. I love that. Look at the way you naturally just flip everything into the a better mindset. This is fantastic. And I think this is going to be the segue here because... All it takes is one person giving you some pivotal advice and the course of your life can change. For you, it was your dad giving you great advice about your gait, having that gentle gait, which is a very queer statement. Um, but for other folks, you know, it can be something that leads you down a long winding path towards the dark abyss of queerdom. And that's what this show is about. And that's why I've invited you here. Because we now know that all these beautiful forces sweeping among us are influencing our choices and making us queer or not queer. All of these beautiful identities and non-identities we've discovered through our ever-growing acronym. But what I want you to do today, into your microphone, with the best posture you can muster, is point the finger of blame once and for all. Cyrus, who and or what made you queer? Oh my goodness. Um... That's a great question. Okay, I will say there was someone who I was, uh, and I'm going to put air quotes around the word dating, okay, okay. Uh, in in high school because it was very chaste. Like, it was very, very chaste. It was, you know, they would write me um, letters and then would meet me after class and pass the letter to me. And, you know, we sort of communicated back and forth. They were uh, amused. I went to an arts high school. Uh, in grade nine and and they were in the music stream and I was in the visual arts stream. Mm. So that was cute. And that definitely like was my awakening that, oh, wow. You know, I, but I, I don't know that I really thought of it as a thing. Like to me, you know, I had this crush on this person and the fact that it was queer wasn't even a consideration for me. It was just so natural. It just felt so just part of my life. And then I started to tell people about it. And that's when I realized, oh, this is a problem for a lot of people, you know, oh. that there was homophobia and there was things that I started to experience. And I was like, oh, you know, and, and I was so innocent. I It had never occurred to me that people would have a problem with this. So then I would say, you know, this happened to be at the same time 
that Katie Lang was coming out and she had released Ingenue and I had it on cassette and like listened to it so much. Remember when you would listen to cassettes enough that they would start to go a little garbled in places because you would over a hundred percent. So it'd be like, Oh, you know, like that kind of sound. So it was like that. Which is like already kind of Katie Lang's vibe. So that would take it even further. Very much so. Very much so. Very much so. So I was coming out along with Katie Lang coming out. Uh, She was doing it to the entire country. I was doing it in my family and in my community. And, you know, there was a lot of homophobia that she experienced and a lot of homophobia that you would see on uh, on the news and that you would see in interviews. And I was experiencing a lot of homophobia in my life. So I wouldn't say that Katie Lang made me queer, but she definitely was my um, companion as we went through this experience without, obviously, we didn't know each other, but alongside each other on this journey. And I I thank her eternally Mm. for getting me through some very difficult times where, you know, when she just continued to show up unapologetically queer and I can remember her being part of this uh, Red Hot and Riot where these uh, music uh, CD compilations uh, raised funds for HIV AIDS Mm. and she did a song for that and and in the song in the music video she's washing the silk negligee or like nighty of a lover not present because you know potentially of uh, of HIV or AIDS Mm -hmm. you know it was so radical for me to see her demonstrate a life that was possible to be a queer adult was possible Uh, and it made me think that it was possible for me to become a queer adult and so yeah you know she certainly made me the queer that i became because i i saw a possibility model in her i love that and the first thing i want to go to is back at the beginning where you had this sweet crush and it, it didn't become taboo until people kind of built the taboo around you or handed you the taboo. But let's just like have a moment to light a candle for that moment of like how easy it could all be if no one introduced like, hey, that's a horrible, sinful idea of just like, just feel your queer joy. Yeah, exactly. And I had been raised in this household that was very activist, very political. And we were going to mm. rallies and demos. And when, you know, Desmond Tutu came to to Canada, we went to demonstrations. We had placards. Like, we were very, very politically active, mm-hmm. you know, uh, protesting at the Royal Ontario Museum when they did a particularly racist exhibit in the early 1990s. Like, my family was very active. Mm. So it had never occurred to me that anyone in my family might be homophobic or that even homophobia was even a thing yeah. because I had been raised in such an accepting household until that moment when I came out. And I will say my parents came a long way. They, they did their research, they did their work, and they ended up becoming champions for queer and trans rights. My dad has now passed away, but my mom still is very active in the trans community in her hometown. And she, wow. you know, goes to Trans Day of Remembrance and she supports other grandparents who whose kids are coming out to them, you know, how to, you know, show up in a good way to your your trans grandkids. Mm-hmm. And so my parents have, have really come a long way. But in those early days, they they didn't have the tools and resources and they really did react very poorly to me coming out. And so, you know, it, it was in that moment that I realized there was a, a, a sect of people who believed that just a simple thing 
was was quote unquote wrong. Yeah. You know, but before that, it had literally never occurred to me that this could be a problem because I never really thought like, am I gay? Am I not gay? I never really thought about it. It wasn't really a thing. Um, I just happened to have this cutie, right. you know, showing up and they, you know, it's like the early nineties. Right. So it's like dropping into your analog DMs, oh, the yes. bomber jacket and the doc Martens and the side shave or the, it was a full shave that we used to do all around the back, mm. you know, but anyways, it was like, they were very dreamy and they, you know, played the cello and they were like, Oh, just a really like a dreamy musician. And it was so innocent, you know, yeah. for me, like, because I was just, you know, I was young, I was 14, 15. And I think the the most radical thing that that ever happened was ditching class to go sit in a park once, you know, like, it was pretty innocent. Oh, that's right. It was pretty chaste. But you know, this reaction uh, that I received from the world around me was not innocent. It was really vicious. And it was really unnecessary because yeah. and it was at the time, you know, the March on Washington for um, queer rights and justice was just a about to happen and you know there was a lot of things that were in the zeitgeist in the media you know this coming to terms with the fact that you know queer and trans justice was a movement here to stay you know mm -hmm. uh you know the world was really grappling with that and and i think you know to come out in those years was quite a thing you know it was quite a quite a moment huge huge and that's funny because i grew up in a very catholic household and so my my comparison moment I'm thinking of first my brother who's like a huge support and wonderful at the he's three years older and we were watching the 90s seminal classic Robin Hood Prince of Thieves of course with Kevin Costner and Christian Slater of course and he was like I have a crush on Maid Marian and I was like I have a crush on whoever Christian Slater's character was I was like five right. and then he was like what like he wasn't even like don't say that he was just like oh, you're, you don't understand what we're talking about, obviously, because that doesn't make sense. Right. And then I was just, it slowly conditions you to be like, I must be missing the joke a bit. But Katie Lang, I remember my mom, bless her, my first Katie Lang encounter was she came on the radio and my mom turned it off uh -huh. and was like, here's why we don't listen to Constant Craving, which like politics and beliefs aside, Constant Craving is an undeniable slow jam. Like what a song. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can't we all just agree on that? Oh, my. if there's one thing that we should all be able to agree on, it's the <laughs> uh, the masterpiece and brilliance <laughs> of that entire album, Ingenue. I mean, um, Miss Chatelaine, Miss Chatelaine yes. is a bop. It's a bop. It's a bop. You can. Anyways. Yeah. No, unquestioned. You can't argue with music science, but yeah, but I totally get it. And so how old were you versus Katie Lang? Like, was she kind of a mentor to you? Yeah, you know, I were you around the same age? We I know she was uh, maybe 10 or 12 years my senior. Uh -huh. And she, my parents had uh, Katie Lang records. They, they listened to Katie Lang, you know? So, uh, you know, we had a, a couple of her albums. And so I, I, I enjoyed her music anyways. It just happened to be that I came out the same year that she did. And suddenly she took on a new meaning to me, you know? Like right. she became absolutely somebody that I really looked up to, you know, as a queer artist, as, you know, I'm an artist and, and, and I was, you you know, mm -hmm. looking for a way to imagine a future where I survived. Yeah. Because at the time it wasn't assured, you know, it really didn't seem possible uh, given what I was facing. And this is what I hope that people 
really realize about the the incredible need for support for trans youth and for queer youth because you know if you don't see a possible future why would you stick around mm. and i think that when we look at you know the the rates of suicide in our community it's it's heartbreaking so you know it really matters to have one or two or you know hopefully a community of people but at least a couple of good people uh, in these young people's lives to say we love you we're here for you and it is possible to to live into a future so yeah i you know thinking about seeing katie lang you know bravely come out in that uh, landscape mm -hmm. in Northern Turtle Island here in Canada, you know, in the backdrop of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the States and the backdrop of, you know, a whole bunch of stuff happening yeah. uh, in what would eventually become the end of le legislation. And, and here she was, you know, being so unapologetically queer. So, you know, it really, um, yeah, she absolutely was uh, you know, I hear and I, I have uh, a poster from and I went to see her in concert. Oh, I've seen her in concert many, many times, but I remember going to see her in concert when I was uh, in the late 90s and, you know, now living uh, my out queer life, you know, my 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 life in my early 20s and and was, you mm -hmm. know, uh, living uh, here in Tagarando and, and she came to perform at the Sony Center or Hummingbird Center. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I still have a poster that I got from that tour and I can remember uh, you know being at that concert and Survivor that it was the first year that Survivor was on and it was the year that the person who won I think his name was Richard Hatch I can't remember Richard Hatch yes was queer and so Katie Lang came out after the intermission and said to the whole uh, audience the gay guy won on Survivor and then the whole <laughs> audience erupts in, in cheers right Yeah, and it was just this moment where like I'm surrounded by queer people. I'm watching this queer singer. We came out at the same time. You know, we're talking about gay news, you know, like oh this person winning Survivor. And it was just like a full circle moment because I was, you know, that was the, the realization that it was in fact, maybe gonna be possible to live a free life. And so that's why I've done the work that I've done my whole life, to be honest, is to really try to create opportunities for trans youth to see a future where they get to live long enough to become elders. You know, that should be something that is guaranteed to all people and it's not yet guaranteed to trans people. So, you know, whether it was like working at Soy, um, supporting our youth, like doing the transfusion crew for like seven or eight years, you know, supporting trans youth in that way, or, you know, working in my community with trans adults to to try to change the conditions that would support our, our livelihoods, you know, that, that would allow us to all make it. Yeah, it all goes back to, to those early days and those experiences that I had. I love that so much. And I also think the Hummingbird Center is a great name for a lesbian bar or any kind of queer bar. <laughs> yes. So it's very apropos for, for that Katie Lang moment. You made me queer. You made me queer. We'll be right back. And now back to more You Made Me Queer. You made me queer. But it's funny too, because now it's with sort of, uh, it's much more complicated, but almost a reverse paradigm of people, celebrities are accused of queer baiting or sort of like pretending to be queer because of the cultural capital it has. So it might be hard for younger folks listening to imagine a time where like coming out, even as like a Grammy award winning, winning singer could end your career. Like the ramifications like could not be overstated 
And so what a absolutely badass thing it was to do in such a, absolutely not like a Harry Styles, I'm wearing nail polish, you figure out the rest kind of way, right. but in a very specific way of like, this is queer and you know what that means. And I'm not sorry about it. I mean, she wore a wedding dress on an award show and said, this is likely the only time I'm, my mother's ever going to see me in a wedding dress. Yeah. You know, referencing, of course, that queer people couldn't get married at the time. And, you know, all yeah. of these things. Like, she was really, really radical. And, you know, I mean, now we live in a world where when we think of Ellen DeGeneres, we think of her sitting next to war criminal George Bush at a, at a game and her and her not even apologizing for it, her standing up for it. Yeah. But I remember uh, Ellen being, a TV, you know, being a comedian and, and coming out on her TV show in the 1990s and Disney uh, dropping the show, uh, Disney uh, canceling the production because she was uh, gay, her losing all of her jobs, sponsorships, opportunities because she came out as gay and what a rat, like it was such a big deal, you know, and now of course mm -hmm. she's like a multi million billion i don't know yeah. you know um you know who who's sitting at ball games with with george bush senior and you know that's a whole other conversation but you know we're living in very different times yeah so at that time in the 90 or 90s and particularly in the early 90s you know it was really still possible that coming out might mean that you lose everything um and i think that that's still true today in particular contexts mm -hmm. but you know it was definitely very true here in canada in the early 1990s absolutely and i think it is funny building on that which is all so so true in one of the like new pitfalls of queerdom as we are granted sort of or in certain countries granted more mainstream rights like marriage or whatever is that it kind of like it was just almost a given if you were queer before. Like, I'm a big Ani DeFranco fan. Mm -hmm. And, like, queerdom sat hand-in-hand -hand with, like, anti-capitalism or, like, all sorts of issues that you just had to kind of, like, delve into and understand because queer people were inherently always on the outside. But now that we have this, like, seat at the media table or whatever, it's very easy to just kind of be like, oh, I don't want to rock the boat anymore because, like, I can be queer if I'm the right kind of queer. Uh, and so I think we're losing a lot of the Kate shakers that that I love about queer folks. Yeah, I think that there's a need for, you know, when they say the first pride was a riot, mm. you know, it's it's now like a catchy thing to say, but but no, it, it literally was like the first, you know, <laughs> that, that that this um, pushing against uh, a status quo that is no longer serving us well, yeah. uh, you know, is an essential part of our genealogy and our history and our lineage and our queer archive and our, you know, our legacy. And so, you know, there's a reason why so many queer and trans people are the leaders of BLM or the leaders of abolition movements or the leaders of, of mm -hmm. organizing around, you know, the front lines of a variety of social issues. Sylvia Rivera, uh, you know, who was one of the Stonewall uh, rioters, you know, who fought back with Marsha P. Johnson and Miss Major, mm -hmm. you know, she famously said, you know, trans people are almost always at the forefront 
of mm -hmm. uh, liberation movements because we have nothing left to lose. Right. So why wouldn't we be at the front of the march, you know? So just thinking about like what queer and trans folks have done to fight policing, you know, that was targeting, and let's not forget that the bathhouse raids happened, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just that they happened in 1981 and in 1999 and the raids on, uh, you know, the, the cruising park in the summer of, of 2018 or 2019 and, 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 like they continue continue to brutalize our community, they continue to raid our community, and it's queer and trans people fighting back and saying, look, we could have something different. We could relate to each other in a different way. We could find safety and security in a different way. So this work uh, sort of isn't done, and we need that kind of radical, fiery, mm. queer spirit that I think is so essential. But I think that what we're seeing now is this real pendulum swing to the right, and we've seen the you know introduction of south of the medicine line in, in the United States, more than 500 pieces of legislation or proposed legislation, anti-trans, anti-drag, anti-queer legislation. We've seen communities in Tennessee, in Florida, where they've made it illegal to be publicly gay. Yeah. You know, these are things that have already, like they have happened. We are seeing this criminalization and this vilification of anything queer and trans or drag or, or gender variant in any way. And that means that we need more than ever to come back together to fight back together and i think that we're seeing that we're seeing incredible organizing you know across a variety of communities in support of queer and trans lives in support of queer and trans justice and this is you know we are probably in the most important next five years on this entire planet's history because what happens in the next five years mm -hmm. in relation to climate will make or break whether or not we're going to still be here oh my god what happens in the next five years in relation to queer and trans justice will mean a very particular kind of future for everyone who's who remains uh you know living on this planet what happens in the next five or ten years you know in relation to some of these big questions of our age, we're in the middle of a change and things are going to go down one road or another. And so I'm very interested in this moment where we get to imagine transforming the conditions of our society into ways where queer and trans people um, have what they need not only to uh, survive, but to thrive, you know, to really have beautiful, full lives where we have joy and where we have rest and where we have care and where we have passion and where we have, you know, everything that we need in order to live full self-determined lives. I mean, listen, there's nothing that we should end the podcast here. That was, that's the mic drop statement. Uh, unfortunately, I do have to soldier on and ask you more things, but, but here, here, if you were listening and you want to press stop there and go about your day on an incredibly <laughs> growth mindset, optimistic, positive note, which I think is so it's such a tiny top of the mountain to stay on where you are fighting for something and you keep the perspective of joy as sort of a destination point because that I think gives you an opportunity for solution versus just creating an us versus them situation, which is like indefinite conflict. So if you keep the prize as that, lives of joy and queerness and things like that, 100%, I think that's something so many people can get behind. And I think this takes it back to Katie, which is, you know, brings me joy to say, because that those role models are so important, right? And that representation, not in a 
tokenist way, which we often get, but just having someone with more opportunity or who happens to be in front of a Yeti mic or have the privilege to say, hey, this is possible and I'm going to show you how. So that's, you know, oh, I just choked on my own spit. It sounded like I got emotional. Maybe it was a bit of both. <laughs> yes. So we have we have that and that's so important. So that to me speaks to a bit of what Katie was to you in that moment. And so let's take it back to that story. Where did you go next in your your the queer that was being baited and pulled out of you? I mean, you know, definitely for my situation, it became increasingly both exciting here. I was starting to go to queer spaces. I went to a bar that was called Tango mm. before it was amalgamated to become Cruise and Tango. It was another bar that was called Tango. Mm. And you had to, at a certain point of the night, a little door would open and then you'd get the stairs to go to fly, which, you know, you couldn't get to until uh, after a certain point through the door. I remember of, this. Of Tango. Yeah. So, you know, I was going to queer spaces. I was going, to, I started at university and had queer uh, professors who taught queer content. So shout out to, you know, George Hawkins and to Colin mm. Campbell and David Buller um, and Joanne Todd, who were teaching, Susan Shell, who were teaching at UFT and who opened the door for me to see, again, more possibilities for a different kind of future. But it became increasingly unsafe for me to stay in the city because of the homophobia I was experiencing mm. from my family and my community. So I ended up deciding to move out to Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil Tooth territories out to Vancouver and go to UBC. And it was there that I got uh, involved in activism for like, uh, you know, for the first time I had been, as I say, an activist kid. I had been going to rallies and demos with my parents and had, you know, certainly mm -hmm. been around activism my whole life, but I joined what was then uh, called the Women's Center, what is now probably called something like the Center for Women and Trans People, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, got involved in the collective. And that began, you know, what has now been a 26-year history of being involved in activism and organizing. And it's been my life's love. My greatest love has been being able to be part of movements that helped to make the world a bit safer for all of us, that helped to make the world a bit more joyful for all of us, that helped to make the world, you know, one where we sort of feel that we can kind of turn towards each other more than turning away. And so, you know, I've, uh, I'm so thankful that I got introduced to ideas of, you know, collective organizing and ideas of art-based uh, justice, you know, and, and creative activisms and, this, you know, idea from Tony Kid Bambera that, you know, artists, you know, are the ones who can make revolution seem irresistible because you can imagine a world where things are different and you can literally paint a picture of that. You can write a story about it. You can write, make a yeah. film that helps us to see, oh, this is possible, you know, so mm -hmm. you, you make it seem so inherently doable that people can't help but want to get involved. So I've been completely committed from that point that I wanted to be involved in what a lot of people call the struggle, but that really is just this network of people coming together to say, we can do this, we can take care of us, we can take care of each other. Uh, yeah. and, 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 you know, getting to build that is it's been the joy of my life. And I love the way you link, like inextricably link art and activism, which makes so much sense. And so on that note, I think we are partly blaming your arts high school 
yes. for kind of setting you <laughs> on that path. A hundred percent. Put in too many crayons available. Absolutely. Whatever. It's but that's what a beautiful idea that it's like artists are through creation, through imagination, are discovering these portals to show us how like something can become tangible or real um, in a way that you know, like connects the dream to reality, people can understand. Oh, I love that so much. I also love that image of someone opening that little door, like whether it be to fly or to a brave new future or whatever. That's what I love. We just need someone to open that little door, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, once you've crossed through that door, you you can't uncross it. Like you, you, you've entered into a world of other possibilities. You're in fly. Exactly. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's once you know that door exists, you know, you're going to always know that that door exists. <laughs> and that's what, you know, queerness has been for me is, has been a possibility because, you know, through queer, uh, I, and I'm using it kind of like in a, mm. a bit of an abstract way, you know, I have been able to look at the world in a different light. And certainly my early experiences of homophobia, I'll tell you something, for all the homophobes out there who think that their homophobia is going to do something, all it's going to do is is radicalize us because what it does <laughs> totally. is it, it tells people, wait a minute, this feels like shit and I actually think that things could be better, so maybe I should work to try to make things better. That's what it did for me. I, I When I was treated poorly just because of who I loved mm -hmm. or who I passed notes to after a class, <laughs> you know, it made me, it made me the activist that I am today because I knew that something different was possible because I had had that brief window where I had a crush and nobody knew and I didn't think anything was wrong with it. Right. And I had that experience where it was so natural and so freeing and I knew that that was possible. And so I've committed my life to trying to make a world where anybody you know, who has um, that kind of experience of maybe a bit of difference, you know, can know that they are welcomed, they are loved, um, that the world is here for them. It's a very dense paradox, but it sounds like homophobia made you queer. Yes, I, I think that homophobia queered my lens of, you know, homophobia... Uh, ended up making a fire in me that led me down a road to meet the people that I've met that have ultimately, you know, resulted in, in the organizing and activism that I've been able to do. Mm -hmm. And so it allowed me to realize that there was another way, a better way, a queerer way of living this life. And I don't mean that in like who you sleep with. I mean a queerer way mm. in terms of the beautiful, joyful, uh, specific things that we get to offer this world as queer people that you can also practice. Yeah. Even if you don't have queer sex, you can queer things as well, you know? So there's this way that homophobia has made me or shaped me and ultimately hopefully what i am able to do is to create some sort of cement barrier mm -hmm. that now limits the impact of that homophobia on others because others need not learn the lessons that i've learned you don't need to do it again we don't need to you know it, it continue to inflict homophobia to spark queer radicality in others i love that it's not a rite of passage it's not it is not and i think that that's you know it's a, it's interesting because there can be a lot of tensions intergenerational tensions where you know different communities have 
you know, in terms of age, demographics have different experiences and different histories and different experiences coming out. And, you know, I love when we get to do intergenerational work and come together and, and, and yeah, this, this doesn't have to be a rite of passage. We can interrupt intergenerational legacies of trauma. We can, you know, create different uh, futures for mm -hmm all of our kin you know and we we think of chosen family in in queer uh, communities so our families are big you know our families are large and we 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 create uh, intergenerational wealth in our family by and i mean don't mean financial capital wealth i mean you know uh resourced mm -hmm. humans who through community care and love are able to be fully present in their lives that's something that we can offer future generations and so um you know i'm really thankful to um folks like monica forrester you know who's a black tra uh, trans woman who has done such incredible work here in toronto uh organizing and doing street-based outreach for 30 years um you know doing uh, incredible organizing through her organization Trans by Toronto and you know just showing up again and again and again in community you know I'm thankful for Nick Redman a black trans man who again has been organizing in our community since he moved to Toronto in the early 1990s and he was the DJ for all of the 90s for all of the queer uh, women's mm. events and you know he really uh, you know prior to his transition and he really you know shaped a lot of yeah. baby queer experiences for a lot of us in the 90s and I'm so thankful for folks like that who are still in the city I'm thankful for folks like Raven Wings you know who's a black trans woman activist uh, organizer with BLM Canada but who you know bravely does this work around abolition that helps us to dream into a different kind of future and so just thinking about some of the incredible community that we have here we're so lucky to live in a place where there are so many uh, trans communities mm -hmm. that you could actually move in and out of uh, nonetheless uh, queer nonetheless queer communities and you know all of the acronym right we're really uh, in a in a big city here um, and so i'm very thankful to be part of this community Again, if you'd like to stop the podcast now before I say something dumb, please do so. But absolutely 100%. And I think that's one of the things that inspires me a lot is the way as a community we've kind of centered or or like reclaimed this word queer, which was very pejorative at one point, but has become this way, like you said, like a noun and a verb and an adjective and all these things that we can just talk about a way to kind of like punk the world we were handed to us that does not allow for us to really thrive within it. And instead, like, it's such a, a utopian, optimistic word for me, but not in, not in a perfect way, in a messy way, which I think is so inviting. What I love about queer art specifically is that, like, genre-defined, it's art that mirrors the way we live our lives, the way we want to live our lives, which, you know, can't be defined or put it within a canvas or a frame or anything like that. Absolutely. I think so much about some of the you know really great art projects that i've seen in the last 5 or or 10 years you know work that really pushes you to think differently you know that really you know yeah just has a different kind of lens on the 
the world. You know, I, I, I just, I'm so, I think about uh, Ange Loft and, you know, some of the work that uh, she's been doing with Talking Treaties and, you know, working with like woodblock printing mm. and zine making as a way of understanding our relationship to treaties here in, in Toronto. And I learned so much about treaties here and, and what happened through, uh, you know, a project like that. You know, I think about Rodney Deverlis and their piece, uh, Welcome, We've Been Waiting, through Toronto Dance Theatre that happened in uh, 2021 or 2022, 2022, I think. And it was, you know, this first coming back to theatre after the pandemic and, you know, this beautiful, again, unapologetically queer, uh, you know, experience with uh, dancers where, you know, all of them are wearing skirts regardless of gender and they're changing on stage and they're, you know, performing up and down staircases and they're doing these very queer duets and, you know, it was really radical work, you know, again, in, in dance, like queering our, our whole thinking through of that genre and that medium, you know, I just really am so indebted to queer artists who who help us to to think differently, to imagine, to imagine differently. Keisha Williams, you know, who is a filmmaker who uh, makes um, their first film, uh, Black Lips, Cages for Black Girls, which was an, uh, an early abolitionist short film here in Canada has, you know, shown all all over the world, so incredible. But one of their new films, The Zoo, you know, really nuanced, beautiful fiction, uh, short film, but a black queer family where criminalization is present. And, you know, this mom is like getting ready to go on a school trip with her son. And it's this beautiful experience. And then of course, you know, the the, the results of criminalization mm. end up impacting their family. And it's just such a beautiful and profound work. So, you know, thinking about all of these, you know, incredible queer artists who are imagining different, I'm thinking of Peter Morin, mm. you know, indigenous <laughs> artist who teaches at, at OCAD and, you know, doing the karaoke love songs and, you know, just this very queer jean jacket blinged out with the karaoke mm. love song, mm. uh, you know, on the back and, and, and singing these power ballads in like rural Regina, you know, outside of Regina, you know, like it's just really beautiful queer work that has helped me to laugh, that's helped me to yeah, to, to feel connected. I love that. And you can tell you're an academic because your citations are exquisite. <laughs> and of course, we add you to that list, Cyrus, uh, as an artist who is contributing to that same queer vision in that queer world and showing queer possibilities. So we are almost out of time. And before I let you go, there is a mandatory game that all of my guests have to play. So would you like to play a game? Yes. Queer. Great, good answer to a mandatory question. So this will be real quick and real easy. I'm gonna give you three things. Your job is to put them in order from least queer to most queer and tell me why. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, begrudgingly, here we go. Thing number one, the BCC field on an email. It's not CC, it's BCC. Thing number two, the pecan, pecan pronunciation debate. Which is it? Which side? Why does that have to be one? Thing number three, the great school science project rite of passage, uh, the baking soda plus vinegar volcano. Okay. So those are your three things. The BCC field, the pecan, pecan, pecan debate, great school, uh, vinegar, baking soda volcanoes, least to most queer and why? 
Okay, so the obviously the most queer is the BTC field. I mean, obviously. <laughs> it's a good name for a lesbian bar too, but anyway, go on. It totally is. And also like because of the generation that I came out in, all of the bars uh, in the 90s were called like some sort of like sneaky title, like shh or secrets or like, <laughs> anyways, they, they were all like the hidden tunnel. Like they were all like secret, you know, like they were- The little doors, yeah. But, uh, but anyways, BCC field, because it is remnant and it's not for the obvious thing, not for the obvious reason that you might think. I'm gonna say the BCC field because it is reminiscent of the secret underground networks that have kept queer people safe yes. for generations where we have literally from trans women's housing that they, you know, from Transy House that Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera started to, you know, the supportive networks that get queer uh, folks out of bad situations like Rainbow Railroad. You know, we are great at keeping, you know, wonderful mycelial networks of organizing that keep queer people safe. So BCC Field oh. is the queers. Second, I am from Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to have to tell you that it's pecan and, uh, you know, Pecan pie, pecan pie. So I'm going to say number two, because in one of the things that is amazing about living in Toronto and Tuggerondo is that we have an incredibly huge Black, queer, and trans community. So huge that Blockorama is the largest and longest running stage at Pride. So huge that we, you know, are part of Caravana and part of organizing all throughout the city. Such a beautiful, big, amazing community. And I will absolutely say that bringing Black and queer and Black and trans together needs to happen more and more and more so that we don't see those two things as mutually exclusive. So I'm going to say really in the end of the day, whether you say pecan or pecan doesn't matter, but in solidarity (laughs) with all of the Southerners out there and, and, you know, there's not a lot of us up Mm. here, but for all the Southerners, I'm going to say pecan. And then um, the last thing I'm going to say is the salt and the baking soda because the baking soda and vinegar is like the cishet guy in the bar who's trying (laughs) too hard to prove that he's not gay you know like that's what that experiment is at the you know you could have built a vacuum you could have you know done an experimentation on natural dyeing but no you did the volcano thing with your dad and he's wearing too tight jeans and that's what's happening you know (laughs) so yeah i think that's the least queer on the scale it's performative. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm sh- absolutely shook. Let me check your marks. One, two, congratulations. 100%, you are in fact a queer person. <laughs> Yay! You did it. Yay! And boy, oh boy, holy hell. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a dream come true for me. And I want to tell you that before this conversation started, I was very queer. And talking to you, Cyrus has made me queerer than ever. Yay. Well, here we go. Here we go. And before I let you go, anything you want to plug? Absolutely. I have a new kids book out that is very queer. There's a queer uh, family raising a young kid who is learning about abolition. And the book is called Abolition is Love. And it features incredible drawings by Alana Fricker and uh, tells the story about how we can resolve conflict, crisis and harm in new ways by coming together as a community, supporting each other, making sure that we're all housed, making sure that we have access to school, water, shelter, food, all of the things that we need to thrive. I'm buying that for my nephew. We're all set. Thank you for the plug and thank you for being here. Um, Stay fantastic. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Bye. Queer, 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 queer.
And I'm back from the helicopter, or the CB radio. God, I love riding in the cab of a truck. Ask anyone. And that's it. So uh, you can email me at youmademequeer at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this show. We are in a world where only likes matter. Likes are the only currency here in Waterworld. And that's it. So, cue credits. You Made Me Queer is created and produced by me, Trevor Campbell. Our editor is Carlo Castillo. Our theme song is by Critty. For more for music, check out lavenderbruisers.bandcamp.com. Our Instagram and Twitter handles are at You Made Me Queer. New episodes of You Made Me Queer come out every other Thursday, every Thursday. Well, one more, one more episode. And from the bottom of my big, bent heart, Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, remember, we're here, we're queer, and it's your fault.